0: Um, Welcome, welcome, thanks for joining us at the Rock Fellowship for Worship today. Um, Just a quick recap of what we've been talking about for the past uh, month now, but we're currently in a series called Idols, and it's kind of marketed as sort of a giving and a money and a finance type of series. Um, In the past month or so, we've been talking about a few different things. In part one, for a quick recap, we talked about How money, money is a tool, and how for a lot, when you read the Bible and really study it, you find that there isn't a real clear, the Bible doesn't say that money in and of itself is evil, or just having money is good. Money is kind of seen as a neutral tool that has dangers, and can be dangerous depending on what power we give it, but at the end of the day is, is also a blessing that can be given to us from God, and that there is power in giving money away to someone else, not just for the benefactor of who you're giving it to, but for the giver in and of themselves, In part two, we talked about this idea of first fruits. And while none of us here really make our money off the land anymore, the idea of giving our first fruit offerings to God highlights two key things about giving. And the first is that giving to God should be an act of both worship an act of faith, meaning that when we give our money to God, it's an acknowledgement of God, you are the ultimate provider, you are the one that makes me, you're the one that saved me, you're the one that provided all of these things for me, For me, I'm simply returning to you what is already yours. And it's also an act of faith in the sense that by giving to God, you're entrusting that your future is not founded in the money you have, but in God in and of themselves. And last week, Pastor Chris shared probably the most um, sobering one, it's that money Is in and of itself deceptive and that ultimately we're all simply stewards of money that has been given to us by God and because of that there's a certain amount of count of accountability that comes with Christians that have money because God has given us that money it's not us that we've uh, necessarily created for ourselves this week um, if you're joining us for Thanksgiving you really came at like the perfect perfect time Um, this series is less There's some elements of thankfulness and the holiday spirit in it, but really this is uh, the finale of our series um, on money. And this is kind of sort of like the final exam of the series where we're kind of taking all the concepts we've learned throughout this series and applying them and seeing them particularly through uh, a certain lens of a man in scripture. But before we go into the word, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you again uh, for this time we have here, this Sabbath. We thank you for all the things that we have to be thankful for, Father. Thank you for all of the blessings that you placed into our lives. And hopefully as this past week, we're able to reflect on the goodness and the blessings you poured out for us, Lord. I ask that that spirit still say true today, Father Lord. Thank you for this time we have together to worship you with our community and our family. Father, I ask that as this time, as we enter into your word, Lord, speak through me. Use me as nothing more than a vessel for your word and for your will. Father, may your spirit be present in this place, Lord. Soften our hearts, open our ears. May we be open and willing to accept your word today. I pray that your will be done in rock as it is in heaven. Praise in your son Jesus' name, amen. You know, throughout this series, if you've been joining us, um, I've been asking a lot of difficult questions, and actually most of the sermons have ended with, hey, this week, ask yourself this difficult question. How much money is too much money for a Christian to have? How much money would you have to give for it to change your life? How has your money been deceiving you? And so this week, I thought we would open up with a, with a lighter-hearted question, but a serious question that applies to this series nonetheless. It generally, it kind of more applies for um, if you're a girl, but also it... It can also work if you're a parent of a daughter as well. And the question is, what is your ideal type? I asked this question in youth Sabbath school, and people were like, what, is this still Sabbath school? Um, but the question is, if you are someone that is single or, or a daughter and you're in the youth, think about what are the three, four main qualities you would love to have in a future significant other. Obviously, if you're married, you know, don't look around it's the person you're with, but you can also answer this question if you're a parent. For, fathers and mothers, who, what kind of person would you want your daughter to bring home to the family? Whether it's for Thanksgiving or for Christmas and, you know, the person you want your daughter to walk in the room with, hey mom, hey dad, this is so-and-so, and and what kind of person would he have to be for you to just be so overjoyed and so happy? Take a second, this is a serious question and pertains to the series. Take a second and think about it. Obviously, we'll exclude the obvious you know, you would love if your daughter came home with like a 5'10", 5'11", youth passer, middle part, round glasses, we'll, we'll exclude that, but for discussion sake, obviously with that exclusion aside, what traits would you want um, this future member of your family to have? Or if you're in the youth and you're single, what trait would you want your future significant other to have? And the reason I bring that up today is because the person we are discussing today in scripture is I think the quintessential, like this is the guy. Like if your daughter brought home this person, it's like, well done my good and faithful daughter. You have been so, so, so good, right? This, is per- this is, person is described in scripture as, as having wealth Uh, having wealth, he was young, he was potentially, presumably healthy, he was a ruler, he had influence, um, and he had power over others. And also in the Gospels, when you read his story, the story just preceding Jesus' interaction with this person is a story of Jesus uh, talking to the young children, saying, bring the young children to me. And when you read Ellen White's uh, commentary of this man, it said that him watching Jesus, be so tender and loving to the children, moved his heart. So he's also good with kids, but this is the story of the rich young ruler, and his story is found in actually all three of the synoptic gospels—Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Before our purposes today, we're going to look at Luke's account, and it's found in Luke uh, in Mark's account, Mark chapter ten, verse seventeen through twenty-two. You may be familiar with this with grew up in, in church, but if not, a quick recap: As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, "Good teacher," he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Uh, You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Fairly confident answer. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The story of the rich young ruler is sort of an iconic interaction between Jesus and money. And in a lot of ways, the rich young ruler is kind of the poster child for this series. And there's a few reasons why. The first is this, we like to write him off as some sort of like not good person, but the reality is when you read the story and you see Jesus' interaction and Q&A with him, it's very clear that this rich young ruler was a good person. This was a good man. And it's easy for us to write him off as some, no, he was greedy, he was bad, he was a sinner. That could not be further from the truth. The the reason I asked this illustration before, like, you know, who would you want your daughter to bring home for dinner? No one in here was thinking, I really hope he brings, my daughter brings some degenerate scum person that's really bad, right? Everyone is thinking, I hope he brings a good person. And the reason I think this, uh, this rich young ruler would really fit that is because we're tempted to write him off as some evil man because of how the story ends. But the reality is, this is a great man. This is not just a good man. You could argue this man represented like the best of us. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, he was respected, he was pretty close to morally perfect, yet he walks away from Jesus. By all accounts, by any sort of metric you would use to judge someone, this was a good man. And the second reason this man is so relevant to us today into the series is that this was someone whose heart was moved and he wanted to follow Jesus. This is what Desire of Ages says. Ellen White says this in her commentary of the story. His heart, speaking of the rich young ruler, his heart was kindled with love for the Savior. He felt a desire to be his disciple. He was so deeply moved that as Christ was going on his way, he ran after him, kneeling at his feet, asked with sincerity and earnestness the question so important to his soul and to the soul of every human being. Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This wasn't some casual bystander. It wasn't someone that was just semi-interested or remotely curious. He kneeled. This was a ruler, a man of status and position and wealth. He kneels at Jesus' feet in daylight in public in front of others and asks Jesus, guide my life, give me guidance for my soul. What must I do to be saved? And yet, despite being a good person that wanted to follow Jesus, the rich young ruler ultimately walks away from Jesus with great sorrow. At this, the man's face fell. He walked away sad, for he had great wealth. There's a direct correlation that the writers make in that last line between wealth and his willingness to follow Jesus. And when you read this story, I imagine for a lot of us here, myself included, a lot of questions come to mind when you read the story of the rich young ruler. Like, well, I still have a lot of my stuff. I have a lot of stuff. Does that mean I am not saved? Does that mean I'm not following Jesus because I have a home and a car and a savings account? Um, what does this mean for people that have anything at all? Like, what, what, what are we supposed to do with this story? How are you supposed, to, how far do you take Jesus's command to the rich young ruler? Is it take some? take none take all of it should we all just be living as jesus did as nomads and liquidated all of our assets what what is the degree to this to which this story applies to us today because i imagine for a lot of us when we read this story it's ooh, that's a kind of a tough thing for jesus to say and i imagine for a lot of us we're saying you know i kind of feel for the rich young ruler like i don't know that that's as easy of a decision as it's supposed to be Now, to be fair to the rich young ruler, before we make him an example of like what not to do and don't be like this guy, um, for anyone that is dealing with any of those concerns when you read this story, I wanna add a little point of clarification. If I am the rich young, let's say if I was in this story and I was a rich young ruler's friend and I overhear Jesus telling this to my friend, the rich young ruler, I think I would jump in and say this to the rich young ruler's defense. Hey Jesus, that's not fair. Because where in Scripture does it ever say that getting rid of all of our possessions is a prerequisite to following Jesus? If you read all of Scripture, there is nowhere else in Scripture where Jesus, God, Old Testament, Jesus tells someone with considerable wealth, I need you to get rid of everything you have, sell it to the poor, and follow me. And not only that, if you're reading Luke's account of this story, one chapter later, Jesus meets another rich man. But this rich man is considerably less moral, considerably less liked, and considerably shorter than him. Yet this man, Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't tell him any of these things. And if you, you know the story of Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus ends up like loving Jesus and he says, you know what? I on my own, volition, I will get rid of half of my assets and I will return four times to anyone I have cheated. Which sounds great. But that's a considerably lower bar than what the rich young will have. First of all, Getting rid of half your stuff, that's commendable. Everything else, it's like you cheated them out of that money. Of course you would pay them back. Why are you patting yourself on the back for that? That's like, that's what you should do. Yet for whatever reason, when Jesus leaves Zacchaeus' house, when he leaves Zacchaeus' house, he says, truly salvation has come to Zacchaeus and this house. Yet when the rich young ruler, the closest person to like moral... It's interesting that Jesus doesn't refute him when he says, I followed all the commandments. A morally upstanding man, a loved citizen, a pillar in the community, comes to Jesus and said, I would love to follow you. I desire to be your disciple. What must I do? Jesus gives him a much higher price of entry. You need to sell all of your possessions. Give everything you have to the poor. You can come follow me. Yet one chapter later, when he finds short, unlike Zacchaeus, he lets him come up with his own version of that story. And yet Zacchaeus is saved and the rich young ruler walks away sad. So why does the rich young ruler have such a high cost of entry? And why is, the only, why is he the only person in scripture that Jesus makes this request to? There's no one else in scripture that Jesus specifically asks. And there are people like in the early church that were doing this of their own volition. And you could argue like Job lost all his stuff. Abraham had to give up his most valued son. But that's so very different from someone, a good person coming up to Jesus and Jesus telling him, you need to give everything you have away and then you can come and follow me. Well, I can't answer the question for why this man is the only person in the Bible that gets asked this, Scripture does imply why that request applies specifically for this rich young ruler. And it's a line that often gets missed. After the rich young ruler tells Jesus, Jesus, I've kept all these commandments, Jesus says to him what I think is one of the biggest compliments he's ever given to another human, other than maybe John the Baptist. Verse 21 opens with the phrase, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus says this, one thing you lack. One thing you lack, implying, and Matthew's account uses the phrase, if you want to be perfect, meaning that there was only one barrier in this man's life to fully committing to and following Jesus, Think about, think about all the things that you and I struggle with in our lives. Think of all the, if I had a bear, Jesus would say, 500,000 things you lack. Take care of all these things, and then we can talk. But he looks at this man, a good man, a moral man, and he says, what I think is a huge compliment. Hey, you're great. You lack one thing. The only thing keeping us apart is your money. And this is what Jesus really asks the rich young ruler. What Jesus is really asking the rich young ruler is, allow me to replace your money. Let me switch places. The role that you give to your money, give it to me. Can I be what money is to you? And with that question, the man walks away in sorrow, for he had great wealth. But it's important to recognize What the man is saying when he walks away. Because the temptation, right, and the struggle and the the tension that the rich young ruler has to deal with is actually very, very, very similar to the same temptation Eve deals with in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Eve's decision is, am I going to trust God and follow his plan for my life or take a step of faith and obedience? Or am I going to listen to what this fruit says it can offer me? That's essentially the decision he has. Am I going to follow God, obey him, or am I going to go with what this fruit claims he can offer me? And in the same way, the rich young ruler has the same call to make. Am I going to trust in Jesus, follow his plan for my life, take a step of faith and obedience, or am I going to trust in what I have and in what my money and my wealth offers me? And ultimately, this is the conclusion that the rich young ruler comes to. The conclusion is what my money provides is more valuable than what Jesus offers because this is the decision Jesus asked him to make. You have everything, man. You'd, if you read the rest of um, Ellen White's commentary on the of Ages, she talks about the huge potential that Jesus saw in this young man, and all the amazing work for the kingdom of heaven they could do together because of who he was and what he experienced. Yet the rich young ruler's answer to Jesus' invitation, to his decision, hey man, are you willing to make this switch with me, is actually, Jesus, what my money provides to me is more valuable than what i think you can give me so thank you for your time but no thank you and he walks away it's a sobering question and i would argue that for the this whole series that has been the question that has been asked of us have we let our money replace our god and the reason this is such a difficult question to ask is because of what pastor chris said last week which is that money is deceptive. And part of the reason it's so deceptive is because money convinces us to make certain compromises in our lives. For instance, if I were to ask in this room, show of hands, who here is a worshiper of money? Nobody raises their hands, right? That's a ridiculous thing to say, whether, no matter where you are on faith, where you're agnostic, atheist, or Christian, or devout, like nobody's in their right mind is like, yeah, I love, love, and worship money. However, what we are tempted to do is exactly what the rich young ruler was hoping jesus would help him do and that is jesus i want to follow you but can i just squeeze you into what i've already got going on can i can just add you into my life as a as a welcome addition and what jesus tells the rich young ruler is no no you can't and he says i want to be what money is to you but i cannot compete with your money and he asked the rich young ruler in that moment to make a choice no i cannot just be a welcome addition for you to have your money and me and we can just do life together for the rich young ruler the decision that jesus makes him make is you need to pick one or the other i'm not going to compete with that and to be honest many of us i think share similar qualities and similar struggles as the rich young ruler i think most of us would consider ourselves to be relatively morally good or at the very least desire and strive to be morally good we all desire to have a relationship with jesus and for most of us we have much more means and comforts than this rich young ruler experienced two thousand years ago but because of all of that i think we share that same temptation and that when it comes to what jesus asked the rich young ruler sell all you have give to the poor and then come follow me i think we cringe a little bit at what jesus asks him because if we're being honest For a lot of us, if we were the rich young ruler, we're not sure if we could pull that trigger and make that happen. If we're being really honest, if Jesus asks us today, hey, liquidate all of your assets, get rid of all of your savings, sell your house, your car, come and follow me, we're not sure if we could do that. And I'm not saying To clarify here, I'm not saying that's the point of the series, and that's not the end of the sermon, and that's not what we're going to ask you to do, but what I do think is a very real danger for us in modern Christianity is that we attempt to do what Jesus specifically tells the rich young ruler he could not do, and that's we have Jesus, and we have money, and we have them share the same position in our lives, but the story of the rich young ruler teaches, if it teaches us anything, it's that money and God cannot compete, that God is not willing to hold the same position money has in our lives. He's not willing to share the chair with money where money has half your life and I have half your life. He says, no, no, no. When it comes to who you serve, pick one or the other. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other or to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. To clarify, he's not saying you cannot have both God and money but there is a nuance and very important difference there and I think the reason Jesus teaches that God and money cannot share the same space have the same value in our lives is because it's so easy for God and for money to do the exact same things for us and when we hold them together it's really easy for the lines to blur a very famous psalm that most of us probably know, Psalm chapter 23. David describes his relationship with God in a few different ways. As a shepherd, as a provider, a protector, a comforter. And if we're being honest, I mean read the story and it's, he leads me beside still waters, he protects me, he guides me, he allows us so that I lack nothing. All these great traits that he views as his um, kind of lens of his relationship with God. Yet if we're being honest, I think for a lot of us, we could say the same thing about our money. That our money leads us and drives us it gives us a sense of comfort it's what provides for us and when we hold on to god is important money is important god provides for me but also money provides for me god can comfort me but also like money is very comforted too it's easy for those two lines to start to blur together of who is our actual protector who is your actual source of comfort what actually motivates and drives you and makes the decisions in your lives and i wonder if this struggle of trying to serve and value both God and money, to have our cake and eat it too, and and feel like, you know, no, no, I feel like I can balance the two in my life and just kind of live in this middle ground, I wonder if that trickles down to the way we influence others in our lives, if that trickles down to the next generation, if that trickles down to our children even. And I say this not to accuse anyone in particular in this building, um, I know on the youth pastors, if I say that, some people are like, oh, like, what do you know about my kids? Nothing about that at all. But I speak a lot from personal experience, right? I grew up in the household where, where money was tight a lot of the time. Is arguably the, the biggest stress in our family's life. And my big goal in life, I knew, I knew that my big goal in life, especially in my academic pursuits, was to be able to make a lot of money. That was a very kind of ingrained goal in my life growing up, or to use Korean-American Adventist lingo, it was be a doctor. But really, they meant the same thing. And obviously, this illustration isn't about medical professionals at all. But in a lot of ways, the way I grew up and was raised, there was this underlying drive and direction that was set in part by my parents, but also heavily internalized by myself and my own desires of that when I was older, I needed to be someone that made a lot of money. I had to, there are so many reasons why. And that was the driving force in large part behind my academic success, behind my future career options, behind the decisions that I made, behind the way that I spent my time, behind the compromises that I would make between God and church and school. And if you were to ask me in high school, hey, be honest, when it comes to your future, what is more important to you? Your relationship with God or making a lot of money? I would have answered, obviously, my relationship with God. But if you looked at the way I lived my life, at what I spent time doing, what I focused on, the decisions that I made for my future, the options I gave myself for my future, I don't think you would be convinced that I was telling the truth. And to be honest, I knew, I knew the right answer is, obviously, God is more important than money. But if you looked at the way I lived my life, I don't think anyone would have been convinced. And I wonder if those same compromises trickle down to the next generation of believers and leaders and children in our church today. When it comes to our future, when it comes to being an adult and navigating through life, we teach them that you need both God and money. And I think for a lot of us, like God is, yes, God is the ultimate provider, God is the ultimate source of comfort. God is the ultimate leader, the ultimate savior, maker. God is your ultimate identity. But you know, money is the means that God does that through. And God and money really kind of work hand in hand for your life. So it's important that you have both when you grow up. Because the other thing I had to reconcile with is this. As much as I I knew that that was a goal I needed growing up and as much as that was something, I don't wanna put it on all my parents because to be honest, it was a lot of myself as well. As much as I had internalized that, what I had to come to terms with was that as I grew older and my mom and parents would start telling me stories about ways that they had seen God work in their lives, the miracles that they had experienced, the providence that God had provided for them, I couldn't help but feel like every time, every story my parents could tell of our family's history, of the things that we went through growing up that I was not aware of, every time they mention a story of God's providence, of experiencing God's power, a story that helps solidify and strengthen their faith, it always stemmed from a lack of something. There was this time in our family where we didn't have the money, we didn't have the means, we couldn't do this, and then God came through and we experienced the power of God. And there was this weird tension that I felt like I had to deal with because on one hand, I felt like my goal had to be, I need to make a lot of money. Partially so, that I don't suffer and I don't have those struggles, but every story my mama told me about these amazing miracles of God came from this sense of we struggled, we there was something we didn't have, something we needed, and we allowed God to work in through our lives because all we could do was have faith in those moments. And I wonder if we deprive ourselves of these type of stories and experiences where we get experience the power of our God of our God in our lives, when we become hyper focused on on finding our source of comfort. In something other than God and believe me when I say I don't think there's a single parent out there that says I would love if my child would grow up and just struggle for every single thing in their lives and just live a much much more difficult life than I do and I'm not saying that's true of any parent here but I think there is a tension to be dealt with here where on one hand we tell our kids and we raise people and we try to to teach and the people we have influence with God is important. You need to have a strong relationship with God. But I wonder if there's also an underlying message of, but just as as important as that, you need to make sure you have a lot of money and be comfortable and secure for yourself because, well, life is really hard without that. And I think the underlying factor may be in all of this is, what I really want is, I would love for you to live a life where you don't need God, but you could choose to have him if you wanted to. And it's a very scary thing to think about. And again, I don't think anyone's a bad person for thinking this, but how can you not help but want good things for your children? But I wonder if that's an implied message we give. Because the compromise that I think parents and youth, we all face, the compromise that we face is that we acknowledge, I think everyone in this room acknowledges that God can comfort us. God can provide for us. God can be the source of our goals, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations. But at the end of the day, we prefer A more tangible source of comfort a more predictable provider and a more appealing goal for our lives and that oftentimes is money and the comfort that it can provide for us yes yes God can do all of those things but you know who does it a little bit better and easier money and I think that is precisely the reason why God says I cannot compete with this force in your life If the source of your happiness and comfort and the the driving motivation for your future is money and not me, and you claim to try to have both, listen, it's not both. It's money. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think that the, the danger that we have in modern Christianity is we convince ourselves that we can. And I think we teach others that they can and should You should live a life where you have a lot of money and you have God, and to be honest, most of your goals will tangibly be focused around making a lot of money, but don't forget to sprinkle some God on top because he is very, very important, but so is money. And Jesus acknowledges this tension and the temptation that comes with valuing both God and money in our lives. And to go back to the story of the rich young ruler, this is Jesus' concluding comments after the rich young ruler makes his decision. This is what Jesus says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, actually some versions say he said to the rich young ruler, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And if anything else, one of the key concluding points of this passage is simply, as Jesus said, that it's very, 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 very difficult to be a Christian with money. It's very, very difficult because as we talked about last week, that money is so, so deceptive and, and the and the promise that it nudges is nah you can you can do it you can have your cake and eat it too have both but the reality is what Jesus seems to be saying here is if you are a follower of Christ that has money it's very very difficult because that's a huge responsibility and a huge level of accountability that is imparted on those with considerable means you know there are a few interpretations of this passage um, that look at the metaphor that Jesus makes it is more difficult for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and one of the more popular theories is called the narrow gate theory and that gate theory is that Jesus isn't being literal when he says it's harder for a camel with the humps to go through a tiny slit at the top of the needle what he's saying is no no no. there's actually um, there was a temple there was a city gate There's a big one and there's a smaller one, and that's what the eye of the needle references. And for camels to get through this gate, what they had to do is they had to kneel down, kind of shimmy through, and you have to take everything off of the camel, all the cargo that it was carrying, to get through. And that's what Jesus meant. Not that it's impossible, because it's impossible for a camel or anything really to get through the eye of a needle. He's not saying that. What he's saying is it's extremely difficult and inconvenient for someone to do that. Personally, you're not gonna like this. I think Jesus meant this literally because of two reasons that I think the passage points to. The first is this, think about what the people that were watching Jesus' exchange with the rich young ruler were thinking. They watched someone who for all intents and purposes was the best of the best. Like this is our man, like this is the person where if an alien came and said, show me the best of humanity, this is him the rich, young ruler with moral perfection. This is the guy. And if he can't make it into the kingdom of God, if he's walking away after Jesus extends an invitation, then who can? And then Jesus' words at the very end, where Jesus himself says, you're right, it is impossible. With man, it is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. For those of us that desire to have a relationship with god but also live in a reality where we have means and we have comforts and we have wealth i think it's important to note that this message and this entire series really if we think about it has been less about your relationship with your money and to be honest it's more about you being right with god because according to jesus it is very 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 difficult to be a christian with money and dare i say it's impossible to be a faithful Christian with money and not have a surrendered relationship with God because our relationship with Jesus dictates our relationship with money. How you view Jesus in your life, the control that Jesus has over your life, the amount of surrender you give to Jesus in your life will determine how you view money. In those entire series, that's kind of been the main thing we've been talking about and not the other way around. It's tempting though, It's tempting to first establish our relationship with money and then be like, yes, I should also go to church and give a little bit and do what I gotta do. But what the story of the rich young ruler tells us is, no, 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 it's not so much about how you view your money. That's secondary because if you are right with God and you are truly surrendered to God, that'll all fall in place and that won't be nearly as important anymore. And we're lying to ourselves if we think that we can have complete ownership and management of our money, do whatever we want with our money, and also attempt to have a complete and full relationship with Jesus, that just doesn't work. So with that in mind, as we conclude this series, I think the most powerful thing we can do is is kind of acknowledge the difficulty um, of being a Christian with money. And and to do that, I would really like if if for this series, as we come to a close, and we've been talking about money and giving and the deception and kind of the relationship with money, uh, for about a month now, but I want, to, I want to acknowledge one more character in the story the rich young ruler story as we, as we wrap up. And that is everybody else, right? So there's this interaction happening with, with Jesus and the rich young ruler. And the implication is that there's a relatively large crowd of people watching this interaction take place. And I imagine there were people in that crowd that were like, I, I know this guy. I've seen him on TV, on the magazine. This is the the super awesome person, right? I imagine people knew, and as they watched this exchange take place, I imagine there were a lot of people that left that day that went home and felt, what just happened? Like, that was crazy. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe that happened. Jesus' words were so, so, so powerful. And they went home, and they completely forgot about it the next day. My question is, how is that person any different from the rich young ruler? I would argue they're the same which is why i think the best thing we can do especially for a series like this about money and finances and the management of our lives is to practically do something something to orient our lives in a way that acknowledges that our relationship with money is dictated by our relationship with jesus and that while we have money we don't serve our money in full disclosure, this, as Pastor Chris and I have been talking and brainstorming about the series, this has always been, like, the most difficult part, which is why, if you notice, the last three have just been, ask yourself this question, and then uh, you keep the answer to yourself, you figure it out with your own family. But as, as I thought about the best way we could kind of, as a church, tangibly understand and recognize the dangers of trying to make that compromise and the importance of being right with God as a means of trickling down and affecting how we do our money, um, there are three kind of applications that I came up with. And the first they go in order for, from most difficult to least difficult. And the first one um, can't apply to everyone. This is just for a specific group of people. And it comes from just the demographic that I have the most interaction with. And the first thing I want you to ask is there's something you felt moved at any point throughout the series about, I want to do something. This is a very difficult question to ask, but I think can be very, very insightful for you and the person you ask to ask you this question. The first is, ask your children, ask your children the question, do you think, mom and dad, we, have idolized or prioritized money as much as we have God? And the second question to follow up with that is, and this is where it gets harder, do you think in any way we've taught you to do the same? Here's why. If you were to ask your children, hey, what do you think mom and dad's biggest goal for you in life is, right? Which I did. So I asked this question in Sabbath school, and the question was, if you could only achieve one goal by the time you turn 30, what do you think that goal should be for you? And then I asked the question, okay, similar question. If, you, if I asked that question to your parents, hey, what do you think your pa- what would you like if your children could have only accomplish one thing by the time they turned 30, become an adult, right? Plans for their future. What would you want your child to have done, have accomplished? I'm not going to answer the question of what anyone said because Sabbath School is a safe place. But I think it's worth asking that question to yourself and to your kids, and as a couple, as parents, am I unintentionally, subliminally teaching my children that God? and money are just as important and work hand in hand? Or am I ultimately teaching that God is the most important thing in their lives and that everything comes second? Because I think it's very easy for those messages to become blurred and that line between what God can do for you and what I hope money does for you to become really blurred and combined with, well, I understand that God is important, but if I think about what I've been taught and the goals that have been set for me, it seems like money does what God is supposed to do. And then that becomes a very dangerous and difficult conversation to have. The reason I ask this question for the parents and have spent time on this is I think, because I know all the parents of our youth, you want your children to have a strong, deep, surrendered relationship with Jesus. And if that's the case, that makes this question all the more difficult because I think this is one of the biggest competitions to having that kind of life, to having that surrendered life to God and everything that our children have to deal with. I truly think This is the biggest competition to Jesus in our lives, especially for the lives of our youth. That was the hardest one. All right. The second one is it's hard, but it's not as hard. I think it's not as awkward. It's give more, give more. There's no amount that I'm going to give, but I want to ask and put this out there. We've talked about the benefit of giving and I really, the whole purpose of biblical giving is that it should be an act of both worship and an act of faith. Now, I understand that not everyone in this room may be in a, in a position. There's, I understand that there are times of seasons of hardship, especially with the holiday season going up. But I want to emphasize a kind of sobering truth. And the reality is, when you think about, hey, I, I can't give more. Like, I, you don't understand my financial situation, which I don't. You don't understand what we're going through. Trust me. I, to give more would be a pretty, pretty big, that's a pretty big deal for us. Not my words, Jesus' words. But Jesus says that following Jesus is supposed to require a certain level of sacrifice, and a certain level of self denial. And Jesus doesn't say, take up your car and come join me. It's take up your cross and come follow me. An act in and of itself that describes sacrifice and self denial. And God, you are in charge and not me. But if at any point in the past month you've listened to either myself or Pastor Chris speak and you felt, man, I feel like I should really do something about this, this is this is the thing. This is the thing. You decide, but before you pull out your phone and just add a one at the end, take some time to pray. Pray and ask God, God, what can I give for it truly to be an act of both worship and an act of faith, where my giving is a reflection of how I view you as the ultimate creator, comforter, pri- provider in my life, and also how can I give in a way that it emboldens and strengthens my faith. And the last is, if for anyone that says, I absolutely cannot do the first two, the first one doesn't even apply to me, I cannot do the, thir- or the second one, it's this. Also feel free to do more than one. The third is, give intentionally. And I talked about the dangers in part two, about the, the, the benefits, the practical benefits of, of auto-pay and setting and forget it, but also what we lose when we do that. And if you can't do anything else, at the very least, consider taking it off autoplay, instead sending a reminder on your calendar. And so that when you do give to God, it's you typing those numbers onto your phone and acknowledging that this money is not just another bill that I'm paying. It's not a a tax. It's not a loan repayment. It's money that I'm giving to God as an act of worship. And acknowledging that, God, you gave me this money. It's yours, I'm merely a steward. But also, God, I'm giving this to you because I know that even if I don't have this money, this amount, you're still going to take care of me. That I'm in your hands and you are the one that decides my future. Ask your children, give more, give intentionally. I think these are the three things that we can apply in our lives to tangibly as a church, as a community, grow in our understanding of what God wants us to do with our money, but also put money in its place. We've said this several times throughout this series. Yes, it was marketed as a money series, but the title of the series is Idols, which means that the real focus of the series isn't actually about money; it's about our hearts. For as Jesus says, "Where our heart, where our treasure is, our hearts will be also." And the whole purpose of the series has been asking you that question: Is your treasure truly founded in Jesus, or is it somewhere else? And I think these are three effective tools that we can choose to do in our lives that remind us on a regular basis that our treasure is not found in the number of commas in our bank account but it's found in the person and the promises of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are a God that is as great and as wonderful and as patient and as loving as you are. Father, I think I speak for, for every single person in this room when I say this is This is a difficult topic, Father, Lord, and and we acknowledge as this moment a prayer of confession and repentance. If any of us have felt that we've replaced you or tried to have you share the place of money in our lives, Lord. But I ask and I pray on behalf of everyone here that, Lord, this is not our true desire, Father. Our desire for our lives, our desire for our children's lives and the next generation's lives, our desire for this community is that you are the sole person in our heart, Lord. You are the king of our hearts, Father, that you are God and you are God alone. Father, help us to give us the strength and the courage to make these tangible changes, to acknowledge your place in our lives, that we may may grow and surrender more of our lives to you. I pray all these things in your son Jesus' powerful name.